Welcome back to the Tromany Podcast. It's Ken Allen bringing you another episode, as promised. This episode is actually kind of part of the lecture series that I set up a couple years ago that delves into the EMT curriculum. Tonight's episode, or today's, or whenever you happen to be in your car uh, spending time with us, it's about patient assessment. And what exactly you should be doing when you show up on a call to help somebody. Maybe be it save someone's life. Maybe be it ease their burden. Uh, These are the things to keep in mind before you get involved in their life emergency. Make sure that you're not setting yourself into an emergency situation. Make sure that you're taking care of yourself and your crew and your friends and the society community at large. Before you delve in there and realize, oh my heavens, I've gotten myself way over my head. So, um, take a listen, see what you think about it. And always, if you have any questions, you have any comments, you can reach me on the Facebook page. You can reach me at traumadypodcast at gmail.com. And you can reach me at City College, where I'm teaching. And if you're interested in this stuff, you want to know more, please Go and take this class. It fills up quick, but it really is, in my opinion, one of the most indelibly important uh, classes you could take in your life. Just so you understand the basics of what you are made up of and what makes you tick. What could happen if you're not ticking right? Or your family and your friends. So take a listen, um, and, and, you know, there are a couple little things here if you got some questions about them. I feel like I didn't really hit the mark on a lot of them, but you know what? So be it. I'm going to send you everything, warts and all. Just see what you think about it. Uh, remember, you can see us at Tromedy Podcast at uh, www.tromedypodcast.com. You can find us on Stitch Radio. You can have iTunes, all that jazz. You know where we're at. And thank you for telling your friends and family about it. Now, I apologize. The volume level is a little off because I was using a lavalier mic. That's like a little lapel mic for me. Uh, I did my best to kind of uh, make it work here. But if it's if it blows you out a little bit, even though I put the limiter on there, I apologize. Please bear with me, remember. It's as best as I could do for this situation. Thanks again. And I hope you enjoy. Can collect what? <laughs> Ex- excrements? Yeah. You're crazy. I ain't collected any. Yeah. That's what um, David said. Uh, well, we usually don't collect it. Uh, no. Like Thankfully. Yeah, okay. Because I ain't carrying somebody still to the hospital if I can help it. So it might be in your pants. What are you going to do? But, um, yeah, we don't. So that's a good thing. So that's something unique that we don't have to do. We don't have to yeah. carry excrement. Now, will we look at it? Absolutely. Will we smell it? Sure. Okay. 
So all of those things are important for us to observe in whichever way you want to think of that. Um, but usually we're not bringing samples because guess what? They can do it in the hospital, right? Another thing we can do, which is really important, we could take pictures of it, right? We could, well, I don't know, but I'm not sure what that is, but uh, I'll take a picture and see. Uh, maybe somebody at the hospital has seen uh, that before. So, so we're going to be able to do that. Yeah, do you have, yeah. I feel like we take a lot of patient history. Yeah. Kind of, we pass that on to the hospital rather than the secondary care. Totally, yes. History taking is vital, even on somebody, you know, if you excuse the pun, but yeah, history taking is vital, and especially if they're unconscious and you can't get the history from them, you're going to rely on something that the hospital never gets an opportunity to face, which is the place that you picked them up, the place of injury or the place of illness onset. And it's all of these things that really you have to be a detective. You do have to think like a detective on what the hell are we seeing here? How did this car do what it did to end up over there on that side of the freeway? Did it, did it, I mean, we need to know, did it roll? How fast was it going? How many times did it roll? Which tire did it come down on last? Were the people inside seat belted? What, I mean, think about it, and you have to kind of play this out in your head to figure out the mechanisms of injury so that you can start to paint a picture on the seriousness of this call, of this patient. The hospital doesn't have that opportunity. They can't see a motorcycle down on the street here and a patient 150 feet down the road with, you know, road rash and the, you know, what they're, clothing look like unless we cut the clothing off and bring it to the hospital which is entirely going to be on you to think of doing that it's going to be on you to think should i bring the helmet that we had to take off that had a giant part of it bashed in you have to be able to be thinking in advance on what the hospital needs to see and what you think is important for that for them in order to understand to get the severity of that patient communicated to them so they never really get to see the room that you went into where there are pill bottles lined up all along the the dressers they don't get to see you know talking about excrement you know cat cat scat all over the ground and the way something smelled and the way things are in that room they are relying entirely on you. So you have to, from the minute you get in there, start being kind of, you have to be a detective and you have to be kind of zen in order to float through that call in high stress and still be marking all the buttons, hitting all the little check marks going, okay, BSIZing safety, number of patients, mechanism of injury versus nature of illness, need for additional resources, and then C-spine. Okay, so as I'm walking up, am I conscious of what I'm seeing? Am I aware of if this patient is staring at me what does that mean versus them unconscious versus them nodding off you you are internalizing all of this stuff you don't realize that you're already doing this as a normal human being and a particularly observant human being you just have to start being aware of all of those things so that you can you can write them down you can tabulate them for the hospital you got to make sure that they get all of that information so, when we get to things like 
do you have to memorize all of this stuff? Yeah, you do have to memorize stuff like sample history, OPQRST, head to toe, uh, AEIOU tips, or uh, DCAP BTLS. Those are ones that you haven't gotten to yet, but you do because they have to be filed away in your memory bank so that you can recall them in real time treating this patient. The rest of that stuff is all about your own mental ability and acuity. And so like, if you're good at hands-on, if you're good at looking at a situation and figuring out solutions to a problem, if you can feel the hairs on the back of your neck start to stand up in an unsafe environment, right? Or you catch somebody's eye and you go, something's wrong with that guy, or we should get the hell out of here now. Those things are what make an EMT great. Those things are what are going to save lives, in many cases might be your own. But you need to also have the facts memorized, these little things that we always talk about, in order to factually assess the patient, know that you're hitting the things that are gonna get them killed or the things that are going to cause them to die, know that you're checking those off to say, well, it's none of those things, and so we have time to sit and work on this a little bit more on scene based on their level of consciousness, their blood pressure, their pulse, based on what I'm seeing, I can spend some more time here trying to determine what exactly is going on here. Or, we don't have time on CNN anymore, we gotta get out of here. Now, what was the blood pressure? Okay, and I'm watching them and I can see their body language starting to slump and they're going down and they're dying. I don't have time now to get AEIOU tips and all the, we'll get as much as we can and we're going to stabilize all of their vital signs. We're going to stabilize their body as much as we can until we get to the hospital. So you have to know, and it's really what it comes down to. Knowing, yes, I have to check all the boxes. I have to do sample. I need to do a scene size up, a patient assessment, primary assessment, a sample at an OPQRST. When does that fall in line? Where should I be doing that in the course of taking care of this man or woman? Doing a head to toe, checking out, reassessing this patient and seeing, okay, when should I be doing all this? Do we have time to do it on scene? Or should we get in the ambulance and hightail it out of here because time is what's gonna save this person. Time in an operating room, not sitting on scene bandaging an arm, right? I don't need, I don't need that. What's gonna save them is an operation, not a four by four dressing on four different spots on the body. So yes, it's, it's starting, is this starting to maybe make sense showing you kind of what, is this where your head's at right now? Are there other things you might be more concerned about? Or no, you're just already on this, this whole, good, all right. Everybody's already pretty square on this. Are you feeling like this is getting a little bit overwhelming? It's a ton of reading, I would. I can't imagine how, go, how you'd have to do this in a month, how some classes do this in a month. There's no way you're gonna glean enough information to be a decent EMT. You need to sit and steep in this for a good semester in order to really start getting the, the what it is, the lifestyle of an EMT lifestyle of a, of a caregiver and um, and really build up an index of suspicion or you know a rolodex of what an injury looks like and what an illness would, looks like what's that patient do in that illness that makes you go doesn't look like doesn't look like chronic bronchitis it looks to me more like emphysema those are both con congestive um, obstructive pulmonary diseases 
but it's a chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, but they look very different in nature. So you can tell based on that what, what you're dealing with more so than the next. So I'm kind of lucky. I feel good that I've been able to last week do, yeah, look at, look at your homeboy here. Showed up with a clicker with a laser beam, no big deal. So, uh, you know what I mean? So I got to do human body with you last, was that last week? Or the week before? Anyway, um, I don't know what time it is anymore. So I was able to do that, which is a good, it's, a important, it's an important lecture. And what I said for you to take away from that is learn those Latin prefixes and suffixes. Those are gonna be little keys to you understanding everything in, in medicine, Every, everything, particularly emergency medicine. But really, even if you went, go on to become a doctor and a specialist, all of that Latin prefixes that, you know, are going to help you start determining what's going on with the body, and it will help you read more academic texts down the line. So instead of maybe reading your um, AOS, you're reading Mosby or you're maybe even reading Guyton's medical journals, and you'll start to get them. It's, it's a great feeling. I remember when, you, when I first picked it up, I'm reading, a, you know, you're reading a, a doctor medical journal and you're reading it going oh my god i get this i understand this all this is a win this window has been opened and i've been i can understand medicine now i can theoretically go through this and get it it's such an amazing unlocking that occurs so um, like i said spend time trying to get that those those little things together those little nuggets the prefixes what they mean and how different words grouped together so that you'll be able to figure out what the words are. Just like I said, you've got to memorize what they mean, but once you do, then you can do math with them and add them and put them together, and then it'll give you a concept of it. So patient assessment is just running the call. It's just the call. What do we do when we get a call for a medical problem? We run a patient assessment. It's what you're doing. If I show up, this patient right here is acting a little funny. He's, you know, altered. Friends are concerned about him, so they call 911. I got to show up, figure out what the hell's going on. What's wrong with him? As I'm coming up, should I be thinking of some other things and have some other ideas in my head? And then start addressing them, get an idea of their level of consciousness, get some vital signs get a past medical history on them, talk a little bit more about what the injury or illness is, get a head to toe and get going to the hospital. That's all we're doing. That's all a patient assessment is. But you have to know certain little things inside it in order to make sure that you're thorough on the assessment. That's what we're gonna go through. Now, when we do this, I hope tonight we'll have some time just to break together and do it with a partner or maybe three people. This is the crux of your midterm assessment. Just seeing that you were able to go through a patient assessment off book, meaning you can just run it through in your head and run that call. It's also the same thing that you're going to be tested on on your final skills assessment. It's the same thing. This is, this is all it is. This, this is this block right here, a nugget of knowledge is what's going to be you're testing throughout the semester. If you get this down, you ace the class. Well, not ace, but at least you'll get a 75, I guarantee. 
The thing is, there are a lot of little things in there to memorize or to get straight in, in the order that you would have them run in your head, okay? How you would run this, what you're thinking of doing next, and then next, and then next, and then based on what I hear on that, am I gonna go to do this assessment piece or am I gonna do this assessment piece? Do I have time to stay and play or is this a load and go call? And it's gonna dictate how you operate when we're dealing with high stress in the field and when we're dealing with it here with your classmates watching you and you feel the stress of the and, and I'll be standing and go, she's dying, man, she's dying. What are you gonna do next? You know, that. It's being able to have this stuff memorized so at least when the stress hits you, you're not scampering to try and figure out what to do next. You kind of go, okay, well, uh, sh uh, AB, AB, so airway, so do we have oxygen on? Good, no, do it. And you start going down the line that way. So what you're gonna see here, this is the, this is the big catch-all that you've been learning skills for up until now. In the future, when you learn other skills, they all fall into patient assessment. So it's basically, like I said, you're just taking care of this patient. And we break it down into a couple of big, whoops, a couple of blocks. Now, do you have the, the paperwork? Do you have a patient assessment sheet? Yeah, I see a lot of you do. That's it, let me see that one. Uh, and you got, there's a medical one, there's a trauma one. I suppose we're doing medical on this one. Sometimes we do trauma. It's, and if you don't have them, um, who doesn't? Anybody not have them? Okay, good. That's it. That's the piece of paper that you need to know and be able to do that off, off book without looking at. You need to be able to swing that. And it's very doable, but I promise you, if you can memorize this bit, the rest of it is easy. The rest of it, if you're good at talking to people, you care about people and, and you want to treat them appropriately, that stuff's all going to be cheese then. You're going to be golden once you learn this stuff. Okay, and let's break this down because we're talking about scene size up, because we're talking about these big ones. Scene size up, I think it's self-evident what that is, right? That's the first thing you're going to do. You're going to size up that scene. You're going to see, what am I dealing with? What kind of patients do I have? What kind of hazards do I have? What am I going to potentially have to do on this call? And if I don't have enough people there, well, I'm gonna call more people to show up. We're gonna take this from here on out as if you are EMTs working on the job, okay? So if you say, I need more help, who am I gonna call? Call dispatch. Dispatch will then contact whoever resource you need to get there uh, either code two or code three. Then we're gonna go do a primary assessment, which is just getting the first of all, mm, what am I looking at with this patient? What are we dealing with? We're getting a baseline set of information. We're going to do a secondary assessment, which is, okay, aside from everything we're talking about today, what other things are wrong with you? And what else can I find out by doing a head to toe, by talking to you about your past history? What else will shine some light on what this potentially could be? And then we're after do doing those, then we do a reassessment. We go back and see, has our treatment worked? Whatever it was, if it's a bandage, has, has the bleeding stopped? 
um, if they were cyanotic and couldn't breathe, did the high flow oxygen help or not? And based on that reassessment, we will decide to do other treatments along the way, okay? This is it, that's it, that's it. So when you start getting panicky when we're running these calls, remember, you're only doing one of those four things. And the first one, you get it done basically when you walk in the door. That's it. You walk in, you go, because I said safety of the death done. Done. You've already gotten that one. So then you're only doing one of those three. Okay? And, and it goes pretty easily. There are some things that you may have a tendency to do right off the bat, which is uh, people love this is it. Just usually... Um, there's a tendency to load and go immediately when you arrive on scene without any vitals, without any treatments, without really any knowledge of what you're doing. So. And I speak from personal experience. I remember that too. You just want to go, okay, well, uh, we're just going to load and go and we'll get off the scene. And you're like, it's, I don't know, what, what are you thinking behind that? Usually, well, if I just say we loaded and go, then I don't have to remember to say that in the future and we're already going to the hospital and that's fine. But what ends up happening is you miss, you miss some really important stuff that are on scene for you to get, like medications, like talking to a family member that can tell you what maybe this patient has had to happen in the past or her tendency for suicide or something where you go, oh, okay, I needed to know that. Or the other thing that can happen is you miss doing something critical to airway breathing and circulation on scene and they end up dying because you didn't stabilize on scene. You needed to take care of it there and then, but you worried about loading them onto a backboard and getting them there, and guess what? Their lung collapsed, and now you can't get them back anymore. So there are important things to do while on scene, but remember that don't take too much time, right? But there is plenty of time to get the info and to do the life-saving treatments, and actually that's the most important thing, and then you can get going to the hospital. Okay, so make sure that you're getting, when we're doing primaries, you're getting a good set of vitals. You're getting the understanding of their level of consciousness, some treatments that they're going to have, and what kind of, you know, whatever you can ascertain from being there, right? So that's your goal. <clears throat> so when we talk about this, the other thing to keep in mind is the priority of importance. Who's the most important person? I love it. <laughs> this is perfect for, for no. I'm not going to make the millennial jokes, right, guys? This is not. No. Who's got the primary uh, uh, importance? How about that? Primary importance on scene. It is who? Like you said. It's you. Well, it's me. But then you, it's you for you, me for me. Who's the second most important person on scene? partner and that then extrapolates to your crew you the caregiver the ones that are going to fix the emergency we're the second most important for the main reason that you, you once we get injured now no more treatment takes takes effect and two the next set of rescuers that show up there are trying to save us so we've taken 
a lot of people out of the game of saving the situation. We've screwed up because we got too highly invested. So the primary importance is yourself. And this seems kind of selfish. I always used to be like, no way, dude, I'll risk my life. It's like, yeah, we get it. You, yeah, you're, you're, you're a tough guy. Don't risk yourself for no reason. In San Jose, we, got a, we have a saying, risk a lot to save a lot. So you can risk your life, but make sure that the life that you're going after is going to be able to live, right? Like, that makes sense. I'm not running into a building where the person's been turned into ash, you know? They're already cooking. That's, there's no reason to do that. That doesn't make sense. So also have the ability to tell yourself, this is going to be terrible, but there's nothing I can do at this point. Now, push yourself to that point, but don't do anything stupid so that now you're in trouble, and now I got a crew of guys and girls coming and trying to save me because I was being a jackass. Yourself, your partner. Sec third. Third. Patient. Can we say patient? Nope. <laughs> Patient's not even third important. Who is? Pretty interesting concept, and this was really uh, brought home after 9-11, but how would you say it? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Everybody else. They're more important. And then finally, it's the patient. Patient's the one that now we're taking care of. So probably doesn't work out to that extreme on probably maybe once or twice in your entire career. You'll have to think like that. But um, on a regular car accident, let's say. Come on, come on, come on. On a regular car accident, your safety. And hey, by the way, car accidents are, are dangerous, guys. And you just remember, when you go on these calls, uh, I used to have the tendency to want to like stop on the freeway when I was new. I could do some help. My parents used to stop and do it. It just seemed natural. And then, but a freeway, uh, a lot of people get flattened on freeways, even when there are lights and sirens on a car, all right? So don't get out and risk your life. So that makes sense. Caregivers, number one importance. Don't get yourself danger. Then your partner, make sure everybody else on the crew is ready to go. And then lastly, you're not in a place that where we have to section this off with lights and cones so that the public isn't smashing into the back of your car or into each other. And then last, let's deal with the immediate problem that we have, whatever patient or patients we're dealing with. This comes into play even more so when we're talking about bioterrorism or any kind of terrorism, right? I remember my dad saying, he came home, he was in San Francisco for 9-11, working over at the Transamerica Pyramid, like in that first do. He was at Station 13. And then coming back after months of doing training on, well, what are we gonna do if we're dealing with a terrorist event? So one of the, one of the test scenarios was, um, it was Pac Bell Park back then, right? The um, baseball game, there's a dirty bomb that's planted, goes off, the entire people there have been irradiated, or it might even have been anthrax outbreak introduced into the um, baseball stadium. People have been c contaminated. What do we do? How do we keep them in there? 
How do you run this call? They're doing it with police, they're doing it with EMS, they're doing it with fire. Uh, they're talking to the hospitals. All right, what are we gonna do? We can do have isolation rooms and everything. First off, how are we gonna keep the people inside there? That's our big problem, right? We don't want them running around going to the rest of San Francisco and infecting all of them. So how do you keep a group of people, hundreds of thousands of people inside a stadium? Lock the doors. It's a good plan. That's, I mean, first idea, yeah. And then maybe post guards at the doors, right? Um, and they start coming over the top and everything. You know, they started, they threw this idea out to everybody. And they go, I mean, I don't know. We set up like more perimeters. And the, um, one of the sharpshooters said, I could just shoot them, you know. <laughs> and they go, yeah, right. And he goes, but no, I'm serious. I don't have to kill them. I just have to show that we're shooting at people. That's going to be a pretty big deterrent for people, right? So that's the extent in which you have to think. Hopefully it never has to come down to that in your career, but to keep the rest of the population safe, yeah, you gotta make a couple more patients a little more worse off momentarily. All right? It's a tough, that's a, that's a, yeah, that's a tough cookie to swallow, but uh, that's the way it goes, you know? Nobody said it was gonna be easy. So hopefully we don't come to that. We show up on a car accident. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I think it's up to you. Nobody actually did it, so I think it's theoretical. I could see that occurring. Yeah, I think also they probably, I don't know, man. Maybe they, I don't know. I feel like if there was a biological attack, yeah, there would be a lot of police guards. It's going to be a lot of police. There's going to be a lot of probably National Guard. There's going to be military. You know, it's going to be going to be pretty intense. And they have also planned for that too. That's a whole other chapter. When we get to multi-casualty incidents and we start talking about federal emergencies, just what it takes to run those things. Um, it's pretty intense. It's pretty, pretty crazy. A whole other part of EMS that you'll be able to, uh, if you ever get interested in that, you could hold some pretty high ranking positions in a community or in the government, just trying to figure out how to handle national emergencies. Uh, but we'll get to that at the end of the semester, not now. So when we show up, we're doing a scene size up. And what do I tell everybody when we walk outside? What's, or when we walk into the classroom from outside to run the call, what are the first two things you say? BSI, scene safety. Meaning, is it safe enough for me to come in and run this call or be in this area, scene safety? You walk in and you see 10 people on the ground passed out, no trauma, obvious. What do you think it might be going on in that room? Chemicals, something, something ain't good. You see that? You go, hey, scene ain't safe. Let's get out of here. No, I'm not staying. Do not stick around in a room where that's happened, right? Unless you, unless you got the equipment to handle it. Um, so BSI scene safety. Now, how many patients? Typically, for our calls, it's it's, it's going to be one patient. When we're dealing with car accidents, usually more than one, two to three people, to five to six. Um, and if it gets beyond about six, or if it becomes simply too much for me to handle as a caregiver and a, and a fire engine company, then we call that a multi-casualty incident and we bring in a bunch of other people and we handle it a little bit more, a little bit more generally. We don't have to do PCRs for everybody and we kind of filter them to the hospitals that have space for them. Question?
Number of patients for, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of missing what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Like, wouldn't we, like, in all reality, like, only be dealing with one, essentially, because... On a mass casualty? Yeah, because we'll be calling other people to come up Not if you're the... That's a good question. If you show up and you've been dispatched to a multi-casualty incident, you'll probably be dealing with one at a time. Um, however, if you're one of the first companies to show up, or you are the first, you're going to be handling everything. So you won't be, usually what happens is you have to handle the organization of the MCI, but you're not handling patient to patient situations. In other words, you start setting up areas to put the patients, you go through and say, talk to me, what's your name, what's going on? All right, you're a green, talk to me, hello, hello, what's wrong? You're a red, okay, go, and you go through and you start to do, so you do see multiple people. But um, in the multi-casualty incident, it's, you know, we don't have to do huge PCRs for everybody. It's, it's fun. It's actually good. We do it here. We do a simulated call, which I don't know if it's, you know, it's not great, but it's appropriate. We do like a mass shooting at a college. And how do we run those calls? How do we handle that? It gets intense. And it's a very real thing to be dealing with right now. So we'll go through it and take it pretty serious. But, you know, get, you know, you'll feel the chaos starting and tendency is to kind of laugh. And kind of, you know, be like, because <laughs> you're nervous about how insane it is. So uh, just be aware of it when we run them. You'll see how, see how they go. You'll see how much falls through the cracks. Um, oh, one last thing I didn't really, I mentioned it. The other thing is to, when you're doing these, when you first start off with these tendencies to load and go with this, I used to do it when I started on my paramedic internship. I needed to put in 240 hours to 480 hours at the time working for a fire, I was doing it through a fire department and I was the e, I was the medic and I had to run all the things with real people on scene, with real paramedics, with real firefighters, with my paramedic preceptor and his uh, paramedic partner and I just had, you have to run calls, you have to do the job for 240 to 480 hours and the tendency when you start is I don't want these people to be watching me. I'm stressed out. Okay, let's just load them up and, and we, we'll get going. Like, right, thanks guys, I appreciate your time, thanks. And, and you leave and then you can get in the ambulance and go, okay, all right, where are we at? Thank God no one's on my case, right? And so you'll have that tendency. What I wanted to get to the point is, we all get it, recognize when you're doing it and push back a little bit. Don't let your body do that to you, you know? Push back, when you start to feel the stress, be like, take a breath. All right, I feel like a, I know what my body wants to do, but what do we need to do for the patient? Because in the end of these calls, in reality, it's not your emergency. Somebody else is threatening, has a life-threatening emergency. Somebody else is facing death, potentially. They're the ones that should be freaking out. We could take a step back. We're not gonna die on this call, right? So relax, start treating the patient. It's their emergency. So give them your undivided attention and the kind of professional work that you need to do for them. Okay, BSI, scene safety, number of patients. Let's we'll just say it's one patient. We'll have a patient passed out in a, uh, in a doorway. That's gonna be our first call. Patient passed out in a doorway. Am I gonna need additional resources for that? 
Like what? Okay. Do you want this patient to be very heavy? No. Okay. Okay. I'm throwing it out there. We have fun with this this person. First of all, yeah. Okay. Well, I don't know who they are. Men, woman, what? Yeah. Go ahead. There you go. Yeah. Very good. So um, we'll say. Um, okay. Let me ask you this. This is our call. We're all one one general ambulance. Do you want to be a 911 ambulance with a medic, or do you want to be a BLS ambulance with two EMTs? 911 with a medic, bro. All right. Yeah, we're badass, right? We got everything we need. So in this case, are we gonna get another, do we need additional resources for one person passed out in a doorway if they're not too heavy? Now I'll tell you this, you're aware that every 911 call where there's a patient, you get at least one ambulance and one fire engine. Okay, or fire truck, depending, but you're right. So you're getting at least everywhere around here, you're getting two people on an ambulance plus four people or five on a fire engine or fire truck. So that's a total of six or seven people. Pretty, pretty thorough amount of people, pretty good to handle one person down. Okay, uh, so keep that in mind. So we'll say that. We got a fire company coming with us as well, showing up for a guy on scene, passed out in a doorway. What other things could you think of for additional resources, though? Let's take a car accident. What else are you going to want on scene? Yeah. Highway patrol. Highway patrol for, for basic traffic, right? What else? Hazmat. Hazmat. If it's something that, yeah, like if it's a, a tanker or just even antifreeze, you know, it depends on how much it is. But, yeah, you could be dealing with some chemicals that have spilled due to the, to the accident. What else? Cool, yeah, yeah, you may, it might be a giant semi that's down in a ravine or something and you need to get, you're gonna need, even on a regular car crash where the car's totaled, you're calling for a tow. You, you gotta get off the freeway, so tow trucks consider additional resources. PG&E. PG &E. thank you, great, that's, you know, it's hand in hand with us going on calls, shutting down power on fires, shutting down, if the car's into a telephone pole, shutting down all the power to that so we can work safely. Those are all really good examples and the, the most common examples of additional resources that we call. You got a dog, who are you going to call? Animal. Animal control. Bingo. So all of those things, you know, you have to think of and, and you need to think of it. Why is it here? Why is it in the, the scene size up? What's that? Yeah, it does. Yeah, for the safety's sake that we need to be able to work in a safe scene. And it's at the very beginning of the scenario or the very beginning of the assessment so that if you need them, they're coming earlier than later. You've thought in advance to call for them. So that's a big forethought. You gotta be able to look at that and go, I think they're gonna need extra people. Let's get them coming now. It takes a lot, about a half an hour to scramble a helicopter with a, meta, you know, with a crew to get there and handle the call. You gotta get them coming early. Yeah, question. Where and when for for what? Like the injury or the what exactly? Let's say the injury happened like in place where there is a tanker, for example, like a river or like in the ocean. You may need like a boat to go. Totally. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Coast Guard. Mm -hmm. Calling Coast Guard or a, a, a fire, a lot of, obviously there's a fire boat that can go on those calls and dispatch. And that's going to be a big thing. Remember, 
we have in trauma calls people that are treated within an hour of the injury that brings up their survivability exponentially okay within that what we call the golden hour there's the platinum 10 minutes are you familiar with this meaning from the moment that we show up to the moment we package and stabilize and get them going to the hospital ideally 10 minutes or less okay we got dominoes beat all to hell it's fantastic we get there we package them we get rolling to the hospital that's a goal we don't always get it particularly on calls where you're dealing with having to move heavy machinery out of the way cutting a patient out of a car those are going to take time and it's going to take manpower and if we don't do it in 10 minutes well we better get going and get some time saved someplace else or stabilize that patient on scene okay uh oh and then lastly so we have the scene size up need for additional resources Blah. and we're talking about the mechanism of injury so we got a patient passed out in the doorway or passed out I don't know do we know if it's a mechanism and you know what I'm saying here by mechanism of injury versus nature of illness traumatic injury versus a medical sick in some way can there be two incorporated into it yeah absolutely you could have a medical emergency pass out and then crash your car so yeah we have to play it and understand as a detective what we're dealing with okay so what are we dealing with if I'm showing up on this call we're all showing up on this call we got our, our partner these are all of our partners we're going on man down in a doorway do we know if it's a nature of illness or mechanism of injury no. nope we don't so you're walking in with that ambiguity I don't know we'll see we'll see when we get there as we walk up we see a general we're getting a general impression of this patient so as we show up I want you to think about this real quick so is our patient what are we looking for what are we trying to find out with them are they conscious or not that's the big one yeah what else <clears throat> yep you're, you're right as you're showing up you're looking at their position that's going to be storing information maybe you see them in a weird you know angulated position that indicates maybe they got beat up maybe they fell in a weird way and they passed you know and they they, they got knocked unconscious okay so you're noting supine are they prone are we going to be able to how are we going to move this patient onto a backboard most effectively from here um, what's in the way do we have hazards as we walk up so we got to scoot stuff away so that we can work clearly on the patient are they conscious or unconscious and the first thing that we go through and this spinal immobilization um, is actually here spinal immobilization actually fits into mechanism of injury and nature of illness so you should be thinking c-spine or no c-spine um, as you're walking up to them because why and what comes very good you're gonna you need to be figuring out how am I gonna handle this patient in other words 
Are we going to be, obviously we're going to need to grab the trauma equipment if we need to C-spine them. Somebody should be going back and getting the backboard and the straps and everything. But also, look what falls into play here, airway, breathing. Well, what do you have to be thinking about in order to treat airway and breathing? What's that? What about it? Mm -hmm. What if they do? So if we have a trauma, sorry, what were you saying exactly? If you have a spinal injury, how do you open the airway? You have to do a different way of doing it versus a head tilt chin lift. So the thinking is be thinking C-spine or no C-spine at the very onset of this call during scene size up so that when you go into it, you don't start jacking them up without realizing, ooh, this was, a tr this was a trauma call and I just broke their neck. It's not something you want to start your call off with is, is you know, murdering your patient. So when I walk up, our patient is what? What do you want him to be, P conscious or unconscious? Conscious. He's conscious. How do you know he's conscious? He's looking. he's looking. Okay, his eyes are open. This is, believe it or not, you've already learned this stuff. Um, when we studied CPR, what's the first thing you do when you show up on a, on a call, either on scene or off scene, or on duty or off duty? What do you do when you see a patient? BSI scene safety. BSI scene safety, thank you. After that, like you're walking with your buddies on Market Street, you just went and saw a concert, there's a guy. What's that? Hey, yeah, what do you do? Remember, remember this bad boy? Shake and shout. Nobody ever heard that, huh? Shake and shout. Mom. That's a good song if you can write that. I'm going to write a rock song. Shake and shout. Shake and shout. Hey, are you okay? Are you okay? You walk over, you shake them a little bit. You shout. Hey, hey, hey. And try to talk to them. Well, what's AFBU? We'll go in the order of how unconscious they are. Av, V is verbal, P is, and, okay, this just means what of those three things gets them to respond in some way, in some way, what stimulates them? Are they already alert? You don't have to stimulate them. They're already awake, all right? You don't have to worry about the rest of V, P, and U. Then there's verbal. If you walk up and go, hey, which you're going to get a lot of in San Francisco if you're like, you know, down in BART or anywhere along where the city hall is, there's a lot of that, okay? There's a lot of that going on. It's a lot of opiates. That's, that's your opiate call right there. All right, when you, verbalization is something that wakes somebody up. If they don't wake up to verbal, then it would be painful or tactile. Hey, hey. Uh, you know, you don't want to, <laughs> I have seen people go, hey, 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 you know, you could be a little bit more compassionate would probably be ideal, but you're doing something tactile, right? Something to see if that does it. And if they're none of those, they're not awake, they're not waking up to voice or audible, then, or they're not waking up to pain, then we say, they're, well, they're unresponsive. They're not waking up for anything. So somebody who's in a coma would be unresponsive, somebody who's dead, would be unresponsive. Uh, maybe somebody who's had a stroke and is paralyzed may be unresponsive.
right? I doubt it's usually not the case, but unresponsive doesn't always mean dead. It doesn't mean, you know, there's nothing you could do. I know a lot of drunks, uh, friends included, where you shake the shit out of them and nothing happens. Okay, and it, you know, that's unresponsive. It's, they're not gonna die from it, but maybe, you know, watch out for other things along the way to indicate how serious the call is. Once you find out, and I'm gonna try and start tying these things all together. So ad poo is something, is a way to say, shake and shout. Once you get them, uh, once you show up, they're alert, or they wake up, they become alert to verbal. Now you gotta find out what? Yeah. Well, you're alert now, but how alert are you? And what are the four things that we ask about for A&O? Name. name. What's your name? What else? Time. Time. Name. Date. Yep. Name. We usually say date of birth, right? Who, what, when, date of birth, uh, where, where are you? Yeah, and you can just say, you know, sometimes date of birth or who, what, where, who, what, when, and where. Who are you? Uh, or just put, not date of birth, but you can put date, you know, what's today. Where are you right now? Tell me where you are. And so why are we here? What happened? What's going on with you? You need to be able to answer those four questions to be considered cogent. Be able, all right, they get, they know what's going on right now, okay? So I usually, what's your name? Can you tell me the date today? Well, what's your date of birth? Um, where are we right now? Just to, tell me what this room is and what, what exactly is going on. And then, so what, what's going on? What, what, what happened to you? Do you remember what happened? Why did you call us today? And based on all those things, you're deciding, okay, they're alert enough to make the right decisions about what they do and do not want as treatment for them, okay? Um, if they are, they've been drinking all day, I just been drinking all day, man. I don't wanna go to the hospital, all right. Can we let them go? Depends on the answer to those questions. You ask those questions, they go, I don't know, all right, my name's uh, Felix, uh, it's uh, February 3rd, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm sitting on market, I don't know, this is where I usually hang out, um, and I don't know what happened, I've just been drinking and I, just, I wanted to pass out here. And you talk to me, you, you guys suck, I don't want to go, screw you. Um, can they refuse care? Why not? Yeah, but they answered all A and O times four. It doesn't? Do they? Or do they? How do you figure? Irrationalize. Let's, let's take this argument down further. Mm hmm Or just drinking to the extent that he's got some brain damage, right? Something today that, yeah, he's pushed himself to the limit where if, if it is what he's saying, I just usually pass out in this doorway. Somebody must have called. Like, is he still 
with his full capacity. What do you think? Because I'll give you, I'll, I'll let you know, here's a little insight. This is 90% of your calls in San Francisco. <laughs> How many of you have done ride-alongs? Oh, you haven't really started yet. Just wait, just, just wait, just wait. And it's your decision to go, can we, should we, do we, do we have to, oh uh, man. Um, and that's it, right? You gotta know, you gotta figure out what to do with this, this person, this guy. So what's his name, Felix. What are we gonna do with Felix? Good question. Can he refuse getting a blood pressure and a pulse and all of that? Why not? I mean, like, he's Good. So we're saying intoxicated. He's in, he's not in his right mind. But you're saying what? I've been there. What, you haven't? I mean, come on, let's be honest. We, let's put ourselves in that situation, right? Okay, go on. Uh, if he's mostly cognizant, then you should try to reason with him. Yes. If at all possible, you're unsure. Uh, if you can't remember exactly what happened, there is um, a danger that you are seriously injured. Uh, temporary amnesia of the incident uh, can also mean that you have suffered a serious problem. Mm -hmm. Mind if I take your blood pressure? Great. Um, that, that brings up a key insight into this profession, I think is, is really important, is put yourself in their shoes and treat them professionally. Treat them the way that you would want to be treated. Don't talk down to them. Explain what's going on. Explain your responsibility for being there and what you're concerned about um, without imposing on them, without them imposing on you. You're there to do a job, to find out if they're safe, the compass mentis. They got enough brains and wherewithal to not injure themselves or anyone else. You go in there, you gotta, you gotta explain it in some way. And that usually works out much better in your favor if you're calm, if you speak to them reasonably, you explain what you need to happen and what would be best for everybody, including them, to see if they need to go to the hospital or not. Um, and you leave that, you know, it's like the walk softly and carry a big stick. You don't need to swing that stick yet because you always have PD a phone call away, right, if you need to. But nobody likes hearing, you better do blood pressure, I'm calling the cops. Like, th that's like every, how many Facebook pages do you see of like security guards like going that way, right? Freaking out, like, oh, oh no, no, call 911. The guy's like, I'm just walking through the hallway here, you know? Well, I've never seen you. Don't do that. Don't be that person. Calm down. Speak to somebody the way that you would want to be spoken to, okay? And it's really, the more you can treat people like they are real people, just they are, the more you can realize you're there doing a job for a person, for a human, and you're there to make them better in some way or keep them from getting worse, the better off the scene is going to go. The better off the, the, the scenario or the event will go, right? It's just going to be an easier thing to handle it if you're using honey rather than excrement. And treating people like that is going to make it um, yourself better too. And if you go out in the world thinking that way, you know, where you start treating people as if it's your job to be kind, helping, compassionate, people are going to, you're, you're going to become a better person for the job on duty and off duty. Whew. That's the end of the first part of the lecture. That was rough. I don't know how I spit that out. Sound good?
So that's the idea there. So we're going to take a little 10 minute break, but keep that in mind to start treating people like they're real rather than they're a set of vital signs that you have to memorize. Okay. See you in 10 minutes.